Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about those who can't do teach. Yeah, well, why it's BS. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, so one of the ditchers down in Ditcherville asked uh, about us. We mentioned that phrase on a previous episode and, you know, sort of as an aside and we're like, that's BS. And we kind of like an audio eye roll at the concept of those who can't do teach. And uh, he wrote in and said, I'd love for you and Rochelle to talk through dealing with that. So thank you very much, Dave. Cool. Yeah. So this actually, this kind of thing, this kind of thing, like this sort of cynical view that the people doing the work work are the only ones that, that I don't want to say know how to do it, but it's kind of like that. It's like, oh, we're the only ones that really know how to do this. Anybody that's teaching it that isn't also currently doing it, not even if they used to do it. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that, oh, well, you don't, you haven't been doing it in a couple of years. Everything changes so fast. There's only us who are on the front lines and coding, coding, coding every day. We really know what's going on. And get out of here, grandpa. <laughs> We've got like, whatever, new JavaScript syntax. And there's I, literally, there are so many new oat current javascript frameworks out there right now that i almost can't even talk to some of my friends who are still doing this stuff i literally don't know what half the stuff they're talking about is <laughs> i don't even know what this is some f- f- flubber i couldn't teach flubber js because i don't know that but there's this there's this weird it's kind of like what's that what's the word for like looking down your nose at something it's like this yeah. this condescending like only we know what's up and the uh, and anybody that tries to to teach around that I think this is where the meat of this episode is going to come from anybody that tries to teach or consult or coach around you know for someone or to a group of people who do that thing they they're all these expert flubber js developers and and who is this person coming in here trying to teach us how to uh, create value for our customers or something like that. Mm-hmm. They don't even know how how Flubber JS works these days, <laughs> and <laughs> and it's like okay, so so that's kind of like that's kind of the attitude that is the starting point in my head for this question, and it spawned a whole bunch of related things like you know I alluded to just now. It's like it's the first time a consultant came into. The first time I encountered a McKinsey style consultant, I was working at uh, Staples Corporate and and I was like on this super steep learning curve. So, so you know, learning FileMaker and database programming and things like that. And I was on this really steep learning curve because I was coming from a graphic design background at that job. And so I felt like 10 times smarter than I was a year earlier because I was, I was still in this really steep part of the learning curve. So this guy rolls in. And, and I was classic case, like here comes a consultant, uh, somebody paid too much money to, to come in and try and solve this problem for us. And, and I'm, I was like, in my head, I'm like, I'm going to explain this to him and he's going to be confused. And I, I started to explain it and he totally got it. And in fact, explained it back to me <laughs> in a way that was much more concise. Because he was already past the learning curve that I was on, and he was way up in the stratosphere <laughs> of of how this stuff all worked. And the the parallel here is that I was a domain expert in our particular data model or our situation inside of this 
job. So it's like outside, no one can understand this from outside because it, we're such special snowflakes and things are so screwed up here. Meanwhile, we were falling into like a typical classic anti-pattern that was so obvious to anybody that had seen. And so even though he wasn't an expert at my job in that company or even, even the software I was using, the, the pattern was so obvious to him that he could he could summarize it back to me better than I could before I could even finish explaining to him. <laughs> so that, that really opened my eyes. And why does this matter? I think this matters because if you, if you are, I doubt a lot of listeners are holding on to this, but, but there can be vestiges of it. If you're holding on to this idea of, if I stop coding, if I stop writing, if I stop, you know, like white papers, if I stop, doing sales activities, if I stop doing these these things that I do, if I stop doing the activity of my craft, then I will, I, I can't escalate, I can't elevate my altitude of involvement by going to something more strategic because then I'll, I'll get rusty. I'll start to lose my edge and I won't be able to give good advice because I'm not doing, I'm not typing semicolons every day, like a, a software mm -hmm. developer might think. That is an extremely limiting belief, which I, I feel like is the sort of, is at the root of this question, of the question, not of the idea that those who can't do teach, but at the root of the question, I think is that fear that, that you'll get rusty and you're consulting or teaching or coaching or whatever it is that you want to move into will become less and less effective over time. I mean, yes. I mean, I agree with all that. I think there's, there's also this us versus them thing that happens for people in our space. Let me just like give a hypothetical example. So let's say you belong to a Slack group or some kind of a community, it could be LinkedIn, could be anywhere. And you're with other people that do your craft. And there is this group dynamic that might happen, not saying it often does, but it might happen, where there's this pressure to be the best technically at whatever this craft is. And that's what the discussion is around. And the reason you joined that group is that you want to know what's going on, leading, bleeding edge, right? Mm -hmm. But there can be, it's almost a shaming of <laughs> leaving the pack to talk about something that's up in altitude. Right. And and what can happen, and it's so subtle if you're really into that group, is you develop the group mindset and you don't question, you don't raise your head, you don't publish the thing that you know is going to make a difference in your work or your business. And if you do publish it, you publish it six months or a year later than you would have. It's like, it's, it's this creation of an us versus them. Mm. It, is, that, is that feeling you're describing kind of like the genesis of an imposter syndrome or who am I to, to write this because these other people in the group are so much better at it than me or is it so just much smarter and hey listen i had that at the beginning of my career i was surrounded by people and we all do like we're all surrounded at the beginnings of our career with people who know so much more than us and it, i i think you're right i mean i think it gets really easy to sort of defer to someone that knows more about this area instead of listening to your own voice and then building on what others have created mm. Okay, so that's a perfect angle 
of attack here. There's a thing I noticed, especially, you know, of course, most of my background's in the software space, so that's where the examples are going to come from. There's this thing I noticed where, where software developers will get in these holy wars over the air quotes right way to do something. Mm. And <laughs> spaces versus tabs is the, the most hilarious, like unending flame war in the software. It goes on to this day. And that's, but that's just one example. There's a million, you know, like what the best language is, what the best language is to solve for this particular problem. Should I use R or Python? Well, I'm, we're team Python and we're team R. And it's like, well, it's different tools for different things. Like why limit yourself to one? And there's just all of these social norms, almost cultural norms inside of these different communities of technicians where they will feel very strongly and argue passionately for the way they do things being the right way. Mm-hmm. And, and that there's like a, you could call it like a craftsmanship kind of thing where it's like, no, that's, that's not how you hang drywall. This is how you hang drywall, whatever. What it does though, is that when that is happens too much, which I would argue that generally speaking, it does happen way too much in the development space, software development space where people fall in love with their, not just their language of choice, but the tools they use, like, oh, I can't believe you use Emacs, like VI is the best or whatever. It's just crazy. They just want to fight about everything. And what it does is it completely loses sight of the fact that the reason you're building this stuff is to create value for a client. And it doesn't matter at all if you use spaces or tabs to the client or to the, the experience of the end user. And I can already hear the argument, well, technical debt. It's like, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter. If there's really technical debt, those problems will expose themselves as like an inability to release features and so on and so forth. Like things that the business is aware of. And And so here, now this is all the way back to your community example, your Slack community example. If everybody in there is fighting like cats and dogs over spaces versus tabs, and you wanna, you wanna go up a level sort of step back or, or, or lift yourself up and say, well, wait a second, what are we doing here? Like, why are we spending all this energy fighting over spaces versus tabs? Let, let's focus on what, what's in it for the people who are paying us and not, and, and just like stop thinking that this sort of evangelism for my way versus your way, or us versus them creates any value for anyone. It's just a complete waste of time. Most of the time, it's a complete waste of time. And if when someone is like, kind of like not the top of the heap of that holy war, they're not they're not the general in the holy war, they could feel like that imposter syndrome thing where it's like, okay, I don't know if I should be using spaces versus tabs. I use spaces, but whatever. This this is how to del- delight your clients. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with spaces versus tabs. Or this is how to attract leads for your f- floundering software development shop. Or here's how to price your services in a way that will allow you to fight about spaces versus tabs 30 hours a week in your free time. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. it, it pulls the attention and the emotional energy into a it's like a skirmish on the side of the mission well it makes it 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 takes something that as you said is a skirmish and elevates it to something more strategic 
And it also has another benefit if you're doing that inside of a community and you're asking questions like that or contributing um, information or starting discussions is you're going to find your people. Mm. Because I guarantee somewhere in that group is someone else who hasn't said anything (laughs) and who maybe even kind of checked out but still has a membership, maybe looks at it once in a while, but doesn't engage because they're tired of people piling on and something stupid. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's another way to deal with this, not just to elevate it. Yes. But to elevate it in public with this group. And, you know, they may just, they may be the villagers with the pitchforks and, (laughs) you know, push you out of town and then that's good because then that's not an organization for you. Right. Yeah. There's this, there's this flip side of it is the cognitive dissonance experienced by these sort of passionate evangelists for the ideal version of the craft. So, so these, the, the Holy war crusaders for tabs, let's say will really angrily be scratching their heads when they see people who switch back and forth between tabs and spaces and yet are making way more money than them. And they can't figure that out. Like that's not fair. The universe is not fair. Like this person who has terrible code quality or is, uh, or whatever is just new and they're not as good as me. They're not as good as me. Somehow they're succeeding in ways that the, the master craftsman wishes or, or aspires to, but they just can't ignore the fact that people are getting promoted over them. People are getting, or they're losing good clients to these sort of these people who are not master craftsmen. So, but then, but then the, the, the switch that I would like to flip for people in that situation is like, maybe something else is going on here. <laughs> like, <laughs> could something else be going on? Could it be that just knowing, let's just say the master craftsman is correct. And this really is the best, best, best way to do something. It could be that that's not as important to everyone as it is to you. Like that's the question you might want to ask. So if you're dealing with people like this, because I, I know none of our listeners are like this, but if you're dealing with someone like this, that I feel like that's the question to ask. It's like, how does that add value? You know, because if we're talking about business owners, it's like, how does that add value? Like spending all of your time, you know, massaging your code base into perfection. Well, there's also another piece of this. I'm going to pick on the graphic designers as an example, just so we, we can stop picking on the software mm-hmm. people for a moment. Um, imagine someone in the graphic design space who is all about fonts mm-hmm. and you know a certain kind of font and the beauty of fonts, and cr- maybe they create um, their own and they license them. But it would be awesome as a as a graphic designer to have someone who knew that much about fonts whose expertise I could tap into and that's the kind of person and there's only so many of those you can have in the world at any given time making money at it but you could have a very high end font guru who has monetized that and they become very successful because they've picked a technical area but in that case their client has shifted. Their client isn't the corporation trying to figure out how to update their look. It's other designers who want to step up their game. So I guess my point is there is room in all of these professions to have a very, very high level guru of something, but that guru is not going to make money the conventional way. Mm-hmm. 
they're going to have to do it in a different way. So I, I don't want to say that there's like no space for that. I've worked with lots of people like that. And you absolutely can, but you don't do it by sitting back on your throne and telling everybody that they're doing it wrong. <laughs> right. Well, I feel like it, in the context of this question in this episode, that there would be font designers out there who would be, you know, slings and arrows at this person who who maybe isn't consciously positioning themselves as a guru, but has ended up the de facto guru for a particular audience when it comes to typography and and then just them you know the, the sort of folks who are still in the day-to-day -day just picking the person apart just attacking them constantly because like oh they're not as good as me or they're not as good as my hero yeah that would be sad i mean i think that's part of what i'm hearing through this whole thing is that nobody wants to be picked on right it's kind of like we're we're creating an us and a them and whoever the them is, you know, we're throwing rocks at mm -hmm. those people. It feels very like, I don't know, kindergarten or first grade or something, very schoolyard sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to comment on, on I, I brought it up a little bit, but I want, I didn't explain how it works. The, the similar, similar situation to your font example, I have to go back to software um, where I'll work with students who are doers and maybe they charge by the hour, maybe they don't, but they're soloists and they're you're getting paid to code. And they, and they, and they see the writing on the wall. They're like, this is, you know, I'm like I'm 45. This is, I'm, I'm making good money, but I'm making the same money as making when I was 35. And competition's getting stiffer and cheaper. And, you know, so, so what's next? And they, and they already want to pivot into more of a true consulting kind of, uh, business where they're they're looking mm -hmm. to go up market they're looking to go up the food chain and start dealing with executives they've been dealing with executives but not as peers so they know that they want to do that but they've got this fear that stems from the i think it stems from the same place like that the the those who uh, can't do teach and it's like that i'll get rusty if i switch to you know, if I put down the IDE, if I if I get away from my, the text editor and I'm just talking about code, let's say, and I can tell you that having made that particular transition, I can tell you that it's surprising how much of your day-to-day, -day, when you're coding, it's surprising how much of your day-to-day, -day, I'd, I'd say easily 80% of it on, on an average day, is rote, boring debugging troubleshooting stupid mistakes it's just stuff that you're not you're not really learning anything you're just like doing doing your thing and maybe only 20 percent of it that even sounds high to me are are you deepening your understanding so like once you get to a certain point and the people that i'm talking about are definitely at this point where they've got all the knowledge they need and they're they're gaining understanding and and hopefully, as they go up the food chain, they're going to turn that into wisdom, business wisdom for their clients as they kind of like ascend the the what do you the upward spiral. The upward spiral, yeah. Yeah, I love that. So the surprising thing to folks, and even to me to a certain extent, was like, well, I'm doing that. And if, if my saw gets rusty, so be it. But what I found was on the projects, the projects, I think without exception... Every single project I worked on, there was a some kind of dev team in in house or 
or at least one developer I worked with in-house or they worked with an agency or whatever. And merely having regular meetings with these folks, say weekly or every other week or something, or just being in contact with them and, and them surfacing the really sticky stuff. Not the like, oh, you left a semicolon off here. Like, oh, the indentation is wrong in this Python script. Not stuff like that. Like junior developers can figure that. They can bang their head against the keyboard and figure that out. But the really sticky stuff, the big decisions get surfaced to you and you can absorb the, the important knowledge from like a team of people. Now it's almost like you get, it's almost like you have superpowers. Like you've got these tentacles going out into, you know, eight different code editors and, and they're surfacing only the really important stuff to you. And so you're really, you're actually keeping yourself very sharp with the things that are closer to the business value, closer to this, you know, higher up, more strategic, uh, the big decisions, you know, should we go with what, this or that, you know, like here's this fork in the road, which side, which side should we go down? And, and when you've got multiple clients that you're doing this for, so you're working with all these different dev teams, you're getting a massive amount of functional knowledge, useful knowledge from like 40 people. And, and then you can kind of synthesize that for each client engagement, depending on their different constraints. So it's funny because on the, on the, you know, before you've crossed this Rubicon, you're like, oh, I fear that this thing will happen if I cross this river. But then once you cross the river, the exact opposite happens. So the irony is painful. And when I explain this to people, they generally get it, but they, they tend not to, they get it intellectually, but they don't always, it just seems unbelievable, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it really is part of the natural progression of any craft. Um, well, I shouldn't say any craft, any craft that we're, we're using it in business, let's call it that. And you get to this point where you can keep doing the same old, same old and not learning anything new. Mm-hmm. Or you can, upward spiral, you can say, hmm, I'd like to learn something different. And so in your example, it may not be exactly the same saw, Right, because it's you're you're not going to be. You, I mean, it's there's only so many things you can be at once. So you're not going to be the all time technical guru, but you will have this new skill, this new saw that is so interesting, and that allows you to grow in different ways, and allows you to provide value at a higher level and charge more. Yeah. And I mean, you know, everybody knows that progression, mm-hmm. or they haven't been listening, <laughs> right? Yeah, I think I had I had that feeling like where where I was switching to more advisory, where I was afraid I was going to lose my edge. Uh, I was afraid it was going to change my identity in some way. I was afraid I was going to miss the the daily activity of coding. And maybe, you know, and maybe there are people out there who feel that same way. And for them, it would be true. Of course, that's a possibility. But I was you know, I, I had these concerns and I made the leap anyway. And the concerns in my case were unfounded. It was just, it was the Mm -hmm. exact opposite. So, so what's the, what, what's the, how does this tie back to those who don't do teach, right? Like I feel like the, the teaching thing and, and this is related to the new saw, which also triggered this is like, I think the idea of those who, who uh, can't do teach among other things, completely 
undervalues the importance or the skill involved with teaching. Yes. It's like a totally different skill. Yeah, and it's not easy. (laughs) No, it's like a whole art and science, like pedagogy. There's a word for it. And if you, and I, I have to imagine most people have had the experience of seeing someone who's just a master at something. For me, it was guitar. Like there was a kid in my high school who was like shredding through eruption, uh, you know, in the gymnasium. And I was just like, you know, can you teach me that, you know, teach me this, teach me that. And he he was not a, not a good teacher. He's like, I don't Mm. know, just go like this. And it's like, how, (laughs) how do I just go like that? The same thing happens with, you know, in sparring at karate where the teacher will like someone who's much better than you uh, will, will say, it's kind of like, just go like this. And it's like, well, how or when, or how did you know to do that right then? It's like, I don't know. I just know. So there can be people who are just absolute masters at some skill that are just awful at teaching it because they're such naturals at it or they've lost beginner's mm-hmm. mind. Yeah. And or they just don't care about the student, right? Because if you care about oh, yeah. the student, you're going to try to figure out how to get through to them. Right. It's a whole new saw, right? It's like a whole new yeah. saw to sharpen. And I, I think probably that is tied in with that thing I was saying where where you can absorb knowledge you can absorb knowledge from teams of people who do what you used to do, which is way more efficient. And it's like way more, uh, yeah, it's just super efficient. And then you're the one that adds the understanding to all that knowledge. And then you, in order to turn that into something valuable to a business, like you said, we're talking about businesses here to turn that into business value, you need to be able to communicate it or reflect it or send it back out in a way that produces action in the client make you know they make a decision that that is beneficial based on your advice so that skill right there is that's like that's like my that was my new learning curve so like one yes you know like yeah go ahead it's it's a it's a it's a functional area really when you think about it it's i think about my own progression in consulting and i started out having to learn like the technical thing on what I was consulting. And that was so fascinating for quite a while. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, I don't want to do five more of those. What do I learn next? And then I learned what I call consulting skills. How do you have a conversation? Uh, You could argue that's selling, but it's also consulting because that the quality of that conversation is directly related to the quality of the transformation that you produce with the client. Hmm. So how do you have those conversations? How do you have difficult conversations in the middle of a project? How do you work with a team behind the scenes? How do you deal with uh, what happens when a client team member goes off the rails? What do you do? Like all of those things. And then, you know, if you're the sort of a typical consultant, you come you know, with three options, right? How do you help them evaluate those options in the way that's best for them so they get the best outcome possible with the constraints of the systems that they have? Like, that's a whole thing. That takes years to finesse that. Yeah. But it's, you know, if you're inclined that way, it's really fun. It's really interesting. You can see the impact. You make a difference every day. But if I don't want to say if there are people who's like really just love the technical and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Do that. But you won't be able to have in most cases, you won't be able to have the influence and the impact that you can when you rise up and start that upward spiral where you can help more people in a deeper way. Right. 
Yeah, I have one student who is the the most conscious of this progression of anyone I've ever met, even more than me, that's for sure, where he was a developer and then he noticed that he was just getting told to do stuff, you know, like, and it's like, well, who made that decision? And he'd say, well, this isn't how I would do it. Like, and they said, well, that decision was already made. Well, who made it? Well, the designer. Okay. So then he turned into a designer. He's like, I want to have influence over these decisions to have a bigger impact. And then again, the designer was getting handed stuff. Well, who decided that? Sales. All right. <laughs> uh, put me in sales. And, and just did, had no ego around his identity. He just wanted to have a bigger influence on the outcome. So instead of, and every developer either is like this or knows someone who is, who's just raging about being told to do the wrong thing and yeah. just do it. It's, it's pain. It's painful. It happens all the time. Cause, and it, and it's true. They are often told to do the wrong thing, but the solution isn't to, isn't to like try and second guess or undo the decision. If your job, if that's not your job. So if that's frustrating you, maybe moving upstream is, is what's going to satisfy you. Or maybe, maybe you don't care. Maybe it's like, Hey, if that's what you want me to do, that's your decision. I will do an amazing job of what you told me to do. And here you go. And Why do I think that's not our listener? It's yeah, it's not our listener. I mean, who knows who's listening to this? But yeah, it doesn't sound. It just doesn't sound like our listeners. Right, right. Per perhaps our, a listener will share this with one of their friends who is like that. I don't know, but the impact word is really resonating with me. It's like uh, it's all tied up. I, I don't. I don't. I'm just probably going to repeat myself at this point. But the impact thing and moving up the food chain away from the hands work into the brains work is where you're going to have a bigger impact because if you can make changes farther upstream if you imagine an assembly line you know if there's a problem somewhere and it's not caught until the car is off the assembly line then they're going to have like a, a half a million a half a billion dollar recall so if you made a mistake way upstream way up the beginning of the assembly line if you're making decisions way at the beginning of the assembly line, they're going to have downstream effects farther down the assembly that can have huge consequences, both positive and negative. But it does mean that you're not riveting doors onto a car anymore. So like mm -hmm. you might be great at that. You might've been the best door riveter ever invented, but if you want to have a bigger impact, it's not going to come from you doing a better at a certain point. It's not going to come from you exceeding spec on riveting the door together at a certain yeah. point if you want to have a bigger impact and of course create more value and therefore make more money it's it's moving up the assembly line you know to management or to uh, sort of entrepreneurial level strategy level going solo design you know like here how assembly lines should be designed and s selling that idea yeah. architect yeah yeah it's i mean it's really all part of this process i mean you know, the original question was, you know, how do I deal with this? Right. Where, where sort of, it, it, I mean, he didn't say it this way, but it's sort of like my best skills are being denigrated in this community. And then, you know, the answer, one of the answers for that may be that that's not the right community, right? Sure. And you, you leave. Um, but yeah, I, th I think every technical community has some people like that mm -hmm. it's not just developers writers have them graphic designers have them consultants have them you know i've worked with people who you know didn't respect the fact that i was really good at selling something that they did but i knew you know, i used to have a rule that i needed to know at least 50 percent 
about what it was I was selling in order to sell it at a high level. But I, I like to know 80. Like I was more comfortable when I knew 80. Right. Um, but as long as I knew 50. And I had people who knew 100% or 95%. And they would just like look down their nose at me like, oh. but then I would sell a $5 million assignment. And they'll be <laughs> like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it, you have to, those are environments that can be toxic. Yeah. And I'm just saying it, the answer isn't always to work within the system. Sometimes it's to leave the system and go create your own thing and, you know, be really brave. Because it, it is it is a brave act to do that. Right. to be really brave and to leave and go forge something with some other people who think like you do or on your own. Mm. <laughs> I, I That is my first reaction to is just like, okay, this isn't the right place for me. If you wanted to, if you wanted to try and turn on some light bulbs, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, what would I do if I cared enough about the community to try and turn on a light bulb? In, in and I'm in the vast minority, um, because, like you said, there might be a, it might be a silent majority, but the loud people are just fighting about spaces versus tabs. So maybe, maybe if you were in a situation like this and you wanted to kind of, kind of like broaden the conversation or shift pivot the conversation. I would tie it to something that they want. I would say something like someone, let's say someone would complain about losing a job to a, uh, a noob, a junior developer. Can you believe, you know, they're like mm -hmm. cranky because uh, they, they lost a job to someone that they look down on who's not, who uses spaces or something. And they would say, well, why do you think the client did that? You know, and kind of like tie I would try and tie a pain because because what I because from where I'm sitting, what's happening is they're trying to make things better for themselves. Because I think I think genuinely, genuinely, people who are um, I don't want to use the word fighting, debating the best practices of their craft. I think that's unbalanced, a good thing, but it can yeah, turn pathological, right? So it it turns pathological when folks are doing it to the in a way that causes their business or livelihood or just quality of life to suffer. So I would probably, if I did, if, if you're listening to this and you're in a situation like this and you care to broaden the conversation, I'd probably ask questions around the frustration of, can you believe that these junior developers are getting promoted or, and it's like, well, why do you think that is? Why do you think that might be? And it can't just be that the bosses and the clients are stupid. Mm -hmm. There has to be something else going on. It's like, what if something else is going on there? What if, what if, what if, dear friend, the clients don't care about spaces versus time? And that's <laughs> all we talk about 24 hours a day or whatever, you know, the, arguing the best practices of the craft. And as I'm saying this, it sounds fruitless, but if I were going to try and do it, that would probably be the way I would go about it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm just... I'm thinking back to a room I was in once quite a few years ago and there were about 20 people and we were all talking about this client who had just merged with another client and they were, they I guess I'll say we, but I was new to it. I didn't know the organization. So we were trying to figure out like what's the strategy and there were partners and sort of directors which were like partners um, but older and 
I was sitting there listening because I was new and I'm, I'm listening to what everybody's saying and they're just raking the clients over the coals. You oh, would think yes. these were the dumbest yes. bunch of people that ever walk the earth. And kind of without thinking, because I sort of got to the point where like, this is enough. I just said something like, you know, what if we didn't talk about the clients this way? What if we thought of them as trying to get to, to be that they're on this kind of noble quest. And it's not like they were a non-for-profit, but they were trying to sell something. They were very well known. It was a big company. I said, what if all these people are actually doing their best? What could we do to help them? And I'll never forget because I, you know, it, it was actually at Anderson. So I had just joined them. And after I sold my firm to them, and like I was a little bit oblivious to some of the politics, which I found out about later, but it immediately changed the room. And there were two people who happened to be powerful people in the room. They had a lot of clout who said, yes, hmm. let's focus on that and let's flip this. And nice. to this day, I still I don't understand why one of the power people in the room didn't do that, because it would have been so much easier for them to do than for one of the lowest status people in the room to do it. Sweet move, but, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was really glad I did it because it was really ticking me off. You know, because it goes against my core values, which I don't think clients are stupid. Hello, they're smart enough to hire us. <laughs> they're at least as smart as us, if not smarter. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? So anyway, uh, I'll get off my high horse. But the I guess the point is that there is a way that you can do that. And sometimes it's really worth doing. And other times, you know, an exit from a toxic situation is a better choice. But, mm. you know, just sometimes step forward and, and do it if you care enough about what's happening. You just triggered this idea here. Let's say it's true. Let's say it's true. Those who can't do teach. So what? Like, why is that? Because the whole time we've been talking about this, I've in my mind of sort of like refuting it. But let's say, what if it's true? Who cares? Because teaching is a different skill. So, and the reason this just popped into my mind, because you were, as you were talking about that, I sort of got the, the Tiger Woods coach or like Michael Jordan's coach, mm -hmm. you know, some, some top performing athlete, they have a coach who is not top performing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we said already that teaching, there's an art and a science to teaching and being able to produce action in the listener. That is really hard and it has nothing to do with spaces versus tabs. But let's just say it's not an insult. It's like those who can't do teach, it reveals more about the person who's saying it than the person who they're aiming it at. But the person who they're aiming it at, like a lot of times teaching is really a lot like holding up a mirror. So it's, this is especially true in coaching. I don't know how much about in, in, if you consider that a, a subset of teaching, but a lot of times, it's just having a sounding board. This is true with mentoring relationships, mm -hmm. parental, in many, many cases, at least the way I do it. It's like, huh, this is interesting. Let me just reflect this back to you. Does that seem like the right behavior? <laughs> or does that <laughs> seem like the right way to think about things? I don't need to know diddly about the intricacies of the thought process because I can observe the behavior. So like if it, if it does have this, this sort of observable behavior characteristic, some kind of a performance art or, or whatever, a sport or uh, just whatever, anything that has a behavior, then it's like, 
Sometimes it might even be better to not be bogged down in the politics like you were. You weren't bogged down in the politics because you were new to just say the emperor has no clothes kind of thing. Like, what if we what if we didn't act like this? What would be would that be better? Maybe. Yeah, that's like that's a classic consulting coaching question. Right. It would be funny. It would be funny to say like <sighs> you could flip it and say, well, those who can't teach do. It's the same. It's right. It's the same knock. It's the same power dynamic. It's like so if someone said that to you, it would be like, yeah, and you have to do because you can't teach. <laughs> I kind of like flipping it like that. Yeah. I mean, because I just think teaching, you know, sort of when somebody says that word, I first think of like teachers in school. Right. And we all have favorite teachers who saw something in us. Or we have the ones that, you know, were terrible. Mm. And then we sought out ones who were better. And, you know, and, and you think about, you know, if you go to university, you have that experience. But then uh, you said mentors, advisors. We have these people that teach us things. And I just think I have such reverence for them. The mm. people who taught me some of the best lessons like years ago, I, I, I think of them almost every day. No kidding. Because yeah. of something that they taught me. And it's valuable. And that person, that teacher, even if they don't call themselves a teacher, they leave an imprint on all the people that they help. And it's, I mean, it's it's really, that's why they, I revere them. I really do. Absolutely. Yeah. Like who has a bigger impact than a teacher? <laughs> yeah. Right? Exactly. Like if that's what you want. All right. Soon as we hang up, I'm gonna I'm gonna tweet those who can't teach do and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that flip. I love that flip. A starkism is born. Oh, so you heard funny. it here, people. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that makes me laugh. Um. Cool. Okay. Is there? I mean, I feel like we've certainly made our point. Is there anything else that we should say before we wrap? Um. No. I did. I really had to think about it. I'm looking at the notes I was taking as we're talking. I, I think. I think we hit it. All right, folks. That's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark, and I'm Michelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for episode 300 of the Business of Authority. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> See you then. Bye bye. <laughs>